All right, let's take our Bibles and turn together to the book of 2 Timothy. Last time we were together, we looked at 1 Timothy, and we noted that these Timothys and Titus belong to this group of three New Testament letters referred to most often as the pastoral epistles. The Apostle Paul writing to protégés in ministry, Timothy and Titus, serving in different places, Timothy serving in Ephesus and Titus serving in the area of Crete as something of elders in the church, although there's probably some justifiable conversation to be had about the precise nature of their service within those churches. These two men are serving in something of a pastoral role in these two areas, and Paul writes in First and Second Timothy to Timothy and later in in the book of Titus, to Titus to encourage them in the work to which they have been called. Chronologically, 2 Timothy is the last preserved writing of the Apostle Paul in his life. What I mean by that is there is potential that Paul wrote letters after, wrote correspondence to other people after 2 Timothy, but there's no record of those. What God has preserved by the work of his Spirit for us is 2 Timothy as the last will and testament of the Apostle Paul. This is the last word we have from Paul. So not only do we find in 2 Timothy encouragement for the younger Timothy, there's also a solemn tone to the letter. It's here that Paul says, I have fought the good fight and I have run a good race. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. It, it's, it's hope mixed with the reasonable realization that my death by execution is now in all likelihood imminent. It's interesting to me that Paul is still preparing for future ministry even as he acknowledges that there's a strong likelihood that this imprisonment is for me the end of the road. There's some key themes that are really important for us here in 2 Timothy that I want us to consider. We'll consider five of those, if time permits, um, in what remains of our evening together. Perhaps the theme that stands out most prominently in First and 2 Timothy is that Timothy would be bold in the gospel. We observed in our study of 1 Timothy that he seems to be a young man given to timidity. There, there seems to be a reservedness about young Timothy that was never an issue for Paul. You, know, you read of Paul's life, I, I take it that Paul was probably very much a type A. You probably didn't have to wonder long what was on Paul's mind, he would quickly tell you. But there seems to be a reluctance to be the man out front on the part of Timothy. And sometimes the negative that can come with that timidity is that you can be, be run over when there are powerful personalities who would seek to charge ahead and run out front. And maybe at times powerful personalities that don't have the best interest of the body in view. Paul takes this concern up once more in 2 Timothy. We'll look at chapter 1 verses 3 through 12 as an example of this, but it really runs throughout the letter again and again. Paul takes opportunity to say to Timothy, be strong in grace, be bold, be confident, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Look first to chapter 1 and verse number 3. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Remembering your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy, clearly recalling your sincere faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice 
and that I am convinced is also in you. Now, this is the Mother's Day passage, right? Where we talk about how faith is passed down here from Lois and Eunice down to younger Timothy. But that's really not the primary focus of these few verses. The focus here is to remind Timothy that God has saved him by grace. That through generations, the gospel has been entrusted to his care. It is the gospel that has saved him. He needn't be ashamed of his faith, nor that of his mother, nor that of his grandmother, or the faith that abides in the heart of the Apostle Paul. In verse 6, Paul continues, Therefore I remind you to keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fearfulness, but one of power, love, and, and sound judgment. Fan to full flame, Timothy, that fire in your heart for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hold fast. God has not given us over to a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and of confidence, of boldness and of love. Timothy, charge the gates of hell. Fan the flame of the gospel in your heart. Verse 8, he states clearly and emphatically what has been alluded to already in verses 3 through 7. Paul says here, So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in the suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. Not only is Paul concerned that Timothy be not ashamed of the gospel, he is at the same time concerned that Timothy be not ashamed of, of him, has led many to turn away from him. You know, there are those friends that stay in the beginning stages of some level of difficulty. But every indication historically is that this is not the first or the second imprisonment for the Apostle Paul, but now the third imprisonment. And earlier imprisonments seemed to have been somewhat lax. At least one of those was a house imprisonment. He was on house arrest, and there was some degree of freedom to come and go. There was a level of comfort that was perhaps enjoyed in that imprisonment, but this seems altogether different. This seems more of the dungeon imprisonment that was customary in the Roman Empire. This is an imprisonment touched deeply by suffering. And so the Apostle Paul says, only Luke is with me. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, Timothy, but don't be ashamed of, of me either. Suffering in the gospel, share in the sufferings of the gospel with me, relying on the power of God. And then Paul really just celebrates the gospel in verses 9 and 10. Listen to what he says here. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and brought us life and immortality to light through the gospel. That is just the message of the gospel. Would you agree? Here, here Paul takes two full verses to just celebrate the gospel. As he encourages Timothy to be bold in the gospel, he just says, this is the message of the gospel. It's a reminder to me that the gospel is not just for the salvation of the unbeliever. There are many times when the gospel is for the salvation of the believer. To rescue us from our timidity, to rescue us from our fear, to embolden us for kingdom advancement, to remind us of the mercies of God that hold us fast, that he has saved us and that he will keep us, that he will strengthen us in our weakness and 
sustain us on the worst of days, that in our unfaithfulness, he remains faithful to us. This is the gospel. Think about how deliberate this is on the part of Paul. And this is not the only place in Paul's writings where he does this, nor is this the only place in the New Testament where apostles take measures to say this is the gospel. It's not even that Paul is writing here to a church. It is that he is writing most directly to Timothy. He's writing to another pastor. Now just, you know, in, in our natural way, if I, were, if I were writing a letter, for instance, to Frank, now I, I wanted to make reference to the gospel in my correspondence with Frank for the sake of time and energy and maybe space. I, I could make a very brief reference to the gospel and I could trust that well, Frank knows all about the gospel. I don't, I don't have to unpack that message for him. But here Paul, to a discouraged minister, takes pains to clearly articulate the ins and outs of the gospel. Not as an inconvenience or as this break from the normal flow of his letter or the message he seeks to communicate, but to simply remind him of the good. With intentionality, Paul says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think, I think most everyone, when, when they come to faith, especially when they set out to study the Bible and to try to understand the deeper things of God, this is the thought. The gospel is sort of the beginning, and I got all that, but I want to learn other things, more advanced things. I, I want to I make sure that I have some of these more complex theological issues meted out so that I understand them fully. And the assumption is that in unpacking or understanding, getting your arms around those more complex issues, that that's where spiritual maturity comes in. Or we read passages in the New Testament that say things like desire the, 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 the meat and not just the milk, where the Bible admonishes us to move beyond those elementary things to more advanced understanding. We, we anticipate that that means that we're moving beyond that introductory message of the gospel to more complex theological issues. But I want you to know, and listen, Paul has it figured out, that, that no matter who you are or how long you've been with Jesus, no one, no one, no one, ever advances beyond the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some years ago in ministry, I was sort of taking it, I was evaluating myself in, in terms of preaching. And I, 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 you know, sometimes the struggle for me can be sort of drawing things down. I like this kind of setting. I teach and I teach and I teach and then we pray. It's a little different on a Sunday morning, and you want there to be a freshness about the way you sort of draw things to a close, and you make a gospel application of the passage that's been before you. And I thought, well, to sort of freshen things up, what I'm going to do for the next few weeks is I'm going to look at the gospel from a different angle or perspective. And I just wrote out a list of words like atonement and justification and grace and I don't know, I had eight or ten words on that list, and I thought, well, I'll soon exhaust this, and I'll, I'll, I'll transition to another way of, of drawing this down. And I am still, these years later, looking at the gospel in those closing moments of a message from different perspectives and celebrating different aspects of what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, 
which communicates so powerfully, expressing the grandness of what God has done to win our salvation and to save our soul. You can never and you will never get over the message of the gospel. What it means to advance in our understanding, to mature in our faith, is to advance and to mature in our understanding and appreciation of the simple message that has saved us from our sin. And so Paul takes these moments to just celebrate with Timothy. He says in verse 11, For this gospel I was appointed a herald, apostle, and teacher, and that's why I suffer these things. I'm not ashamed because I know the one I have believed in and am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel and don't be ashamed of me because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Most of you are old enough if you were in the proper church context to remember the hymn we used to sing in our home church that celebrated the perseverance of God with sinners. And the chorus went something like, and trust me, I'll not sing. I know whom I have believed. And I'm going to mess the whole thing up now because I'm not singing it out loud the way I sing it in my head. But I'm confident that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That's what Paul is celebrating here, that he has saved me and he will keep me. Timothy, do not be ashamed of the gospel. There's a second key theme here that's taken up in verses 13 and following. In fact, it, it follows through into chapter 2 and verse number 7. It closely attends the idea of being not ashamed of the gospel. It is that we should be strong in grace. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace that God has afforded us in his son. Verse 2, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the recruiter. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get the share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So there's a series of commands that Paul issues here, each of them in, in a way pointing Timothy to this commandment that we are to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He says, in, in, to hold on to sound teaching in, in verse 13. And I skipped over those verses, I, I think. Did I skip over verses, the end of chapter 1? Specifically, he says, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you've heard from me. Hold on to sound teaching. Ground yourself in the teaching of the word. Ground yourself in the message of the gospel. Hold on to sound teaching. In verse 14, he says, guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard through the Holy Spirit who lives in us that good thing entrusted to you. I think it's necessary in, in, in the present age to note that we guard what has been entrusted to us 
by the Holy Spirit, which should, in the majority of instances, look remarkably gracious. It should look remarkably gracious when you guard what has been entrusted to you, namely the message of the gospel. Uh, we, we, in staff meeting on Monday, Marlon, who is our, uh, one of our pastoral ministry interns, he came to us from a seminary campus. And we were sort of talking about things that we were grateful for. In fact, the conversation was how our walk with Jesus in the last year had been. But I found it interesting that Marlon noted that it was refreshing to him to come here from a seminary campus where disagreements, corrections, rebuke happen with grace as opposed to the seminary experience. Here's what he means by that. Young, young pastors are zealous, often far more zealous than wise. And so in a seminary classroom, like if you say something that someone can quibble over, it's like piranhas, right? You know, people just jump, you know? And everything's about a, a, a theological debate or argument. That, that, is, that is the environment on the seminary campus. Everyone's trying to strain their brain and understand things with greater depth. And every first-year seminary student has everything figured out. If you don't believe it, ask them. They will tell you they have it all figured out. So I was encouraged a bit to hear that tone changing. But, but, but here's my observation. On social media, everyone is a first-year seminary student. Everyone has it all figured out. If you don't believe them, just ask them. And what I'm saying to you here is that when the Bible speaks of our guarding sound doctrine, keeping, protecting the gospel that has been entrusted to us, it looks much different than the so-called discernment bloggers who have assigned themselves to police the church for any perceived error whatsoever. We should guard what has been entrusted to us, but we needn't bring shame to the church in the process of doing so. Our tone, our conversation ought to be touched and marked deeply by the grace that has been lavished upon us. Guard, Timothy, what has been entrusted to you. Now look to verses 15 through 18. This seems misplaced until you realize what Paul's doing. Remember now, we've gone from hold on to sound teaching, guard what's been entrusted, now to verse 15. This you know. All those in Asia have turned away from me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he obtained mercy from him on that day, and you know very well how much he ministered at Ephesus. Here's what Paul is saying. Many, many have turned away, but the faithful remain. Be strong in grace. Guard what has been entrusted to you, and regardless of the circumstances of life, Stay faithful in the ministry of the gospel. He says in chapter 2 and verse 1, be strong in grace. And in verses 2 through 7, suffer well. The metaphors he uses to demonstrate the nature of Christian ministry is that of a soldier, that of an athlete, and a farmer. Now, we know characteristically what it looks like to be a soldier, an athlete, or a farmer. Each of these 
vocations or responsibilities require discipline, incredible focus, competition according to the rules, following after the parameters of that particular lifestyle or, or a choice of, of work. If you don't do things the way they are prescribed, whether it be in athletics or in farming or as a service person, a soldier, you won't last long in that particular field. Paul says these are earthly vocations that provide for us something of a picture of what it looks like to minister in the gospel. Suffer well even as the soldier, the athlete, or the farmer endures the hardships that are characteristic of their work, you, as a good gospel minister, are to bear well with the hardships that are characteristic of the work to which the king has called us. Be strong in grace. Now look at chapter four, or chapter 3 rather, in verse number 14. Chapter 3 begins with Paul providing something of a spiritual forecast for the days ahead. And it ain't good. In fact, it's really bad. He, he says, you know, Timothy, things are only going to get worse. And in the last days, men are going to have itching ears and they're going to search out teachers who will say the things that they want them to say. And although they may do ungodly things in the present, they're going to do all the more in the days that are to come. Timothy, things are bad but they're only going to get worse. And you know what Paul does in verses 14 through 17? He points Timothy to the Word of God. I think the design here is to point to the fact that the Word of God has sustaining force for the people of God, even when the world around us has lost its collective mind. Look at verse 14. As for you, in other words, unlike those around us, unlike the world at large. As for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When the world around you goes crazy, run to the Word of God and find that there is indeed sustaining power here, isn't there? So we're all, it's like, it's January 5th, right? So, I mean, everybody's up to speed on their Read the Bible in a Year program, right? It'll be March before we start to get lax in those areas. And you've experienced in these initial days of a new year the sustaining force that the reading of God's Word has on you. If you tailed off in the end of 21 and you weren't spending the time you should have been spending with God's Word, you have sensed that marked difference in the joy, the delight in Christ that you take in these days as opposed to the closing days of 21, just days ago, circumstances are all the same. The only difference, the lone variable, is the presence of the power of God's Word in your heart and mind. And oh, what an impact it has. Paul points Timothy to the Word of God, noting that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is inspired by God. I wonder sometimes the level of depth we have with regard to understanding the inspiration of the Scripture. Let's unpack this idea for just a moment. Often, 
when I'm preaching from a book in the Bible, for instance, 2 Timothy, we make reference to the Apostle Paul. We made reference to his personality in the beginning of our time together, likely a type A guy. You knew where Paul was coming from and where Paul was headed. He was an agenda-driven brother. The goal is to get the gospel to the next city, to the Jew first, and also the Gentiles, clearly following after a methodology established by Jesus in his earthly ministry. That was the paradigm for Paul's ministry, and it never breaks for the course of his work. We talked about Timothy's personality. We've talked a bit about the historical circumstances behind these letters. Those things are factors, right? Because God inspires individual persons, the apostles, to write as we have received them what we know now to be the Word of God. It is God working through the historical circumstances and the personalities of those involved to express to us, to communicate to us His Word in a given set of circumstances. So the personalities, the historical circumstances of those involved is a part of our understanding. But make no mistake that what supersedes the authorship of any human involved in the writing of God's Word, inspired by the Spirit of God, is the authorship of God over His Word. Ultimately, there is one author of God's book. It is none other than God Himself. It's just a book about the work of the Holy Spirit by God. It is a, a book that has no mixture of error whatsoever. Whether we're able to understand, comprehend, or unpack all of its details, that's a non-issue. It's God's book. And God's involvement out of necessity dictates, you know, even philosophically and in every way, God's involvement makes this book inerrant and infallible. Are you all following with me? God's involvement in anything makes of that work a holy endeavor in which there is no mixture of error. God's involvement in the inspiration of the Scripture is what makes this book what it is. It's what makes the Bible God's Word. Now, people can play games with this kind of conversation, and people will say things like, the Bible contains God's Word. No, the Bible is God's Word. That's a subtle but significant distinction often point out in our starting point class when we talk about non-negotiable doctrines, one of the non-negotiable doctrines of our church is a belief in the inerrancy of God's Word. And that language, the language of inerrancy, is specifically chosen for us because it, it leaves no wiggle room whatsoever. You can go to liberal or moderate churches and they will talk about a belief in the authority of God's Word. Or they will talk about a belief at times in the sufficiency of God's Word, or even a belief in the infallibility of God's Word. But the Word that leaves no room to wiggle, no, no room for qualification or exception, is the language of inerrancy. Not only is God's Word infallible, it brings to pass what it promises it will bring to pass. It is authoritative. It is the, the, the sole authority, the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. When we make decisions together as a body, we need, we need look no further than the Word of God for the precepts and the principles that guide us in making determinations as individuals or collectively as a body. It is sufficient. The Word of God is all we need. This is not a slight or a dig at anybody, but the kingdom is a lot older than Lifeway Christian bookstores. The Word of God is all we have ever really needed to carry forth the plan of God. 
But we might add to that as, as a statement, an emphatic statement of our insistence on the Bible as God's word that it is inerrant. There is here no mixture of error. There are no mistakes in the word of God. This is what Paul intends when he speaks here of the inspiration of the scripture, profitable for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. There's a couple other things I want us to be able to touch on just quickly, so, so let's move fast. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, th these are verses that are precious to me because in so many ways they encapsulate what I believe God has called me to do. Look at verse 1. Paul says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing in his kingdom, proclaim the message. Persist in it, whether convenient or not. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when they'll not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, be serious about everything, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. This is what you're to do, Timothy. And this is what I think faithful ministers of the gospel everywhere have ultimately been called to do. Now there's context provided here and some discussion about what is to come, the challenges that could potentially arise, the frequent inconveniences of fulfilling the ministry God has assigned to you. But there are essentially four primary charges that are given in these verses. Number one, we are, as verse two says, to proclaim the message, or as it is most traditionally translated, preach the word. Which is to say, our assignment is not to preach our opinions, or to provide clever insights, or to conduct group counseling sessions periodically, but to preach and apply the word of God for the people of God. That's the assignment. That is the assignment. And woe unto us if we ever drift from that assignment. The primary responsibility of the minister of the gospel, and I think, I think this has application that goes beyond the office of pastor or the persons ordinarily associated with filling the pulpit. I think there is application here for the layman. And I dare say there's an element of application here for ladies who are a part of the body. Not to preach in a formal sense the way we often make application of this passage, but as they have occasion to share the message of the gospel, to hold fast to the exposition of God's word. The word of God is powerful. As one preacher has said recently, and it's become a sort of popular proverb in preaching circles, it's not your preaching that makes the word powerful. It is the word that makes the preaching powerful. Stay close to the word of God. In the word, there is power. Even in your efforts at, at evangelistic conversations, spiritual conversations, stay close to the word. The message here in verse 2 is preach the word and to be persistent in that effort. Verse 5 holds the remaining commands of these five verses for us. Paul says in verse 5, but as for you, be serious about everything. In other words, be 
sober-minded. This is not far from those qualifications for ministry Paul enumerates in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy where he talks about being serious and steadfast and respectable and sober-minded in a little different language. Be serious about everything. Now, I don't think that this means that the, the minister has to be overly stoic and no fun, although I've been accused of both. But I do think that he ought to be sober-minded and the kind of person to whom others can look with seriousness. I'm thankful to God in heaven that we've moved past that season in American Christianity where there seemed to be a silliness about pulpit ministry. There are some that are holding on to that epic in time, but thankfully they're not being taken seriously by, by many. Now, I can remember as a young minister, like the thing was you needed to be hipper and cooler in order for people to hear you well. And people know I'm not hip and cool when they meet me, right? And so being fake didn't seem to play. And I'm just not sure that at the bedside of dying men and women that they care about your hairdo and your skinny jeans. I just don't, I don't think that they do. I, I'm, I just really, I really don't. I, I, you know, I, I'm, and I'm, not, I'm not suggesting to you that it matters so much what the hairdo looks like or the kind of clothes that we wear and those kinds of things. We can get all wrapped up in the wrong kind of stuff and become Pharisees before we realize what's happened to us. But there ought to be a certain sober-mindedness about ministry that affords us the ability to be taken seriously when it comes time to be taken seriously. That's what the Apostle Paul is referring to here. Be serious about everything. Endure hardship. That's the second command here in verse 5. Be willing to bear with the challenges, the obstacles that will inevitably arise in ministry. I served for 12 years in, this, in, in the same ministry before coming here, and, and I'm anxious. I, I would give, I tell people this often, I, I would give who knows what to be able to hit fast forward on my life and the history of our church to see where things might be 10 years from now. Because I got to tell you, it takes about five years to say hello to Baptist, to get to know them, for them to get to know you, and the, the most fruitful years of my last pastorate did not come in the first six years of New Preacher and Honeymoon and those things that people talk about. But on the back end of some real hardships and challenges experienced in those early years, in the latter years of work and ministry there, those were the best years. Our last year was our best year, and the year before was the best before that, and the year before was the best before that. And it seemed like every year things just got sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. But I am the, I am the longest-serving pastor in the history of that church. And I, I have looked back over, over its history and wondered how many pastors missed those sweet, sweet years of walking with the people whom they knew and, and, and whom knew him because they were unwilling along the way to endure some of the hardships that inevitably come with the ministry God has called us to. If you jump ship when the hardship comes, you will always miss the sweetest days of ministry God might have otherwise 
had for you. Our perspective is this. When the difficulty comes, it's a sign that God's not in it. We're on to the next stop. Even in the life of a church, as a member of the church, it's, if things have gotten sticky, we're going to go down the street and find somewhere else to fellowship. We're looking for a new landing spot. But in the New Testament, the apostles seem to regard things in the, com- in the complete opposite way. Paul said, a great door has been opened for me, and there is much opposition. The hardship was the indicator for Paul that God is here and at work. Not the indication that things are, this is where I need to be. This is where it will be smooth sailing and easy for me. When it got hard, Paul set up shop. When it got easy, he moved on. And, and I'm just telling you, the sweetest days of ministry are always on the backside of some of the most bitter conflict, hardship, and suffering that you'll face or experience as, as a minister of the gospel. I don't care if you're a pastor, layperson, connect group teacher, working in the nursery, the sweetest days are always on the other side of some difficulty. Paul says, endure hardship. He says, do the work. Of, and then I think the summary statement is, fulfill your ministry. Do what God has assigned you to do. Make that the priority of your life. You can't talk about 2 Timothy without talking about Paul's farewell. There is, again, a solemn tone about 2 Timothy, especially in its final chapter. We could say a lot here, but I think what I'd like to do is to just read for you in the last couple of minutes that we have, verses 6 and 18. I'll probably not be able to resist some commentary on the back end, but we'll give it a go. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me in the future the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Make every effort to come to me soon, For Demas has deserted me because he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in ministry. I've sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak I left in Troas with Carpus, as well as the scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his works. Watch out, for your, watch out for him yourself because he strongly opposed our words. At my first defense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the proclamation might be fully made through me and all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What a sweet and gracious way to say goodbye. May the Lord grant that each of us would finish our race with the same grace and dignity and gospel fervor exhibited in the Apostle Paul. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for these moments to reflect 
on a life and ministry lived long ago, but which still speaks in such a powerful way today. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to the end, to run the race well, to keep the faith. God, I pray that you would guard us from sin, that you would help us to be bold in the gospel, that we would be not ashamed of the message of Christ, that we would be strong in grace, that we would hold fast to the word of God, that we would fulfill the ministry you have assigned to us, and that maybe you might give us occasion to bear such powerful witness to the gospel, even in our last days. Go with us as we depart, Lord. Help us to tell others about the way the gospel has changed our life and how by grace and mercy it may change theirs as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.